Welcome to the Rock Community Church. Pastor John Warehouse is teaching from the Book of Acts. Enjoy today's sermon. Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us. We are honored that you would be here today. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, I notice this thing fills up because it's near the door. That's, uh, that's very nice. I'm getting used to everything a little bit, little by little. And um, it's so nice that you would be here with us to worship today. Um, I want to uh, make mention of this Memorial Day weekend. Um, there are so many of you that served this wonderful nation in which we live that has enabled us to have the freedom that we have today to have church and, and to do what we do in these United States of America. Um, I never had the privilege of, of serving in the services. Um, I got caught in that time in, in, in period where I was in between and, and didn't have to go uh, into the war. Both my parents, my, my dad and my uncle uh, did. My uncle in particular was um, was quite unique. He came from the old country with um, my mother, his sister, and their mother, my grandma. Uh, gra- grandpa was already here. Um, came from Yugoslavia, Croatia, to uh, find a better life here in America. Brought the family over, and my uncle, I guess, from the moment he was born, was the tough kid. He was just tough. He was, you know, during the depression, he uh, decided to make money for the family by becoming a professional fighter. He had over a hundred fights. My dad tells me, my uncle never told me, my dad told me, he, he fought under the name of, of uh, I forgot what he fought under the name under. I want to say Johnny Rogers, but that's not it. Anyways, his last name was Perkovich, so he didn't fight under that name. But uh, my dad said he was just tough as nails. He had uh, over a hundred fights and he only lost about four of them. And he never fought for uh, the championship. Um, he was, whoever was the champion wouldn't fight him. I mean, he was really, I guess, that tough. But anyways, when, when it come time to go into the service, uh, World War II, he went in uh, with, with my father. Um, and uh, my uncle, being the man that he, he, he was, he passed away, uh, was just tougher than nails. When they had, uh, they had to ask some of the men to volunteer, they were going to, uh, create a, a, a group of men that were going to learn how to parachute and they were going to parachute them behind enemy lines. And they told, the, they told the men in the camp that this was a very, very dangerous mission. And my uncle says, I want to go. Let me get at them. And so he was one of the first <clears throat> to volunteer. This always chokes me up. And um, a bunch of other men did too. And... Um, Last, the last training session they had, jumping out of their planes and kind of getting everything set so that they would go behind enemy lines. They were going to force the enemy towards the, towards the, you know, the allies. My uncle jumped out of the plane and he hit a, hit a rock in the field, broke his ankle, broke his leg, so he couldn't go. Every single person that went on that mission died. Every one of those guys died. I mention that because they gave of their lives for you and me. And so there are a number of you here today that uh, either have loved ones that perhaps have passed away in the, in the services 
or some of you here have gallantly served us, men and women alike. And if you don't mind, we'd love for you to stand up so that we can say thank you. Thank you. Really do love you. And thank you. Um, That's the least we could do. Now, traditionally in our church, we kind of get into the Word. Um, Not going to do a message on why it's good to serve or anything like that. Um, We're going to talk about the Bible. So would you open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. We are in a very absolutely marvelous place in the Word of God. And I say this because we are seeing Peter formulate the church. He is starting the church on the right foot, so to speak, and he's keeping it where it ought to be. He's not letting them vary from one degree to the left nor to the right. He has set the church up. He has been, as we learned in chapter 1, verse 2, he has been given specific orders of what to do and what to say. All of them have. Love you. All of them have been given orders, the apostles, on what they're to teach and what they're to say and how they're to set things up. We've already learned that. And those orders have been passed along to the next generation. And then the next generation, as we've already learned, it's we now hold them in our hands. We hold the very essence of church in our hands. What ought we to be like? Well, as soon as Peter got through preaching his message, we learned in verse 41 that 3,000 people accepted Christ. That's a great number of people. And so what do you do with them? And Peter mentions in verse 42 the very guideline of what a church ought to be. The very essence of a church. And as I said to you last couple of weeks, and I, I maybe, maybe overstated all of this, but I, I want to say it again and again and again so that you and I are crystal clear on what really makes a true church. What makes a true church man and woman, young person of God. And what we saw in verse 42, and we talked about it for one complete week, we said that they were continually devoted. I want you to mark that in your heart. If if I were to ever give you a pop quiz, which I won't do, I won't ever try and do that to you. But what if, if, if ever you were, I want you to know that verse 42 is key to us understanding what church is all about. That we are to be a group of people that are continually devoted to the things of God. That's truly what church is all about. Church was never meant to be a place where we come and we entertain. It wasn't meant to be a place where we do things. Church was meant to be a place where those of us who agree in our belief system gather together to encourage one another, to lift up each other, and to equip one another so that when we go out into the world... If the Lord would find favor with us to try to uh, introduce uh, Jesus Christ to our neighbor or a loved one or friend, we would be equipped to do so. We would know how to handle the Bible well enough to introduce them to our Savior. And so the church is to be made up of people who are continually devoted to the things of God. And if you need to know any agenda that I have, that would be one of my agendas. To try to, to strive within my heart of hearts and, 
and for you and for you and for me, that we would be people that are continually devoted. Now, as we said last week, they were continually devoted to certain things. It wasn't just haphazard. And Peter said, I want you to be continually devoted. And he says in verse 42, I want you to be continually devoted to our teaching, the teaching of the apostles. In other words, the things that Jesus Christ gave to the apostles to give to others, that's what the people were to be continually devoted to. And we learn immediately that a church that opens its doors ought to center its heart and its thoughts and its mind upon the the teachings of the Word of God, of, of the apostles. This is of utmost importance to us. And then we saw how the other things that were mentioned in, in verse 42 fit together. For the body of believers, after there was a continual devotion to the things of teachings of the apostles, they were to have a continual devotion of fellowship with one another. And that meant that they should have a... a, a, a a feeling, a sense of supporting one another, of lifting each other up. We're going to see that today. We're going to see the overflow of their love for one another through the rest of what we're going to study in this particular chapter, chapter 2, from verse 43 to verse 47. Once they were in continually devoted to fellowship with one another, to encourage one another, to lift each other, other, other up, to support one another, then they were to be continually devoted to the, the, the breaking of bread or communion. And as we mentioned last week, communion had two very, very strong purposes. Number one and foremost, there was to be a a remembrance of who our Lord is. They were to always take communion in remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for them, what he said to them, all the things that he did. We're to remember that. We're to remember utmost is that he went to the cross And he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. So that's one of the things, probably most important, of of taking communion. But of great importance within the body of Christ, the reason, the other reason we take communion is we are to take communion and first examine ourselves so that we don't take communion haphazardly. We're to see if there's any sin in us. And I believe what Peter wanted to do within the body of Christ was to... to, to stay in harmony with what was going on so they would be of one mind, so that they would just have a, a love for one another. Communion was a time that you would examine yourself. And if there was something that you had against someone else or someone had something against you, you were, you were open to for forgiveness and to make things right within the body of Christ. And ultimately, they were to be continually vote, devoted to prayer. Because prayer is what unleashes the very power of God within the congregation. With that in mind, then it says in in Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. They began selling their property and their possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And it ends by saying in verse 47, And the Lord was adding to their numbers 
day by day those who are being saved. You want to know what the purpose of a church is? That's it. The purpose of the church is that we would be, as I'm going to say at the end of this message, we would be so trustful, the Lord would be able to trust us with with what we're doing, that He would add to our number, day by day, people who are being saved. That's why we open our doors. That's why we gather together. That's why we live. We live so as to to have the privilege of, of introducing Christ to people who do not know Him. And what we're going to see from today is because of the way they lived, their continual devotion to Christ, they were having favor with everyone. Having favor with everyone didn't mean that they were having favor with everyone within the church. That was supposed to happen. They were having favor with everyone outside of the church. They were having favor with people in the community that were non-believers, that didn't go to church. People were seeing they were a, a very attractive group of people. Not attractive in looks, because then I'd be out. We, we can't do that. We want to be attractive in our hearts. As Jesus said, look, and he wasn't kidding. He said, look, you want to you wanna prove that you're a disciple of mine? He says, love one another. By the way you love one another, you will show, you will demonstrate, you will uh, have the whole community know that you're a disciple of mine. And so this this place in Scripture is critical for us to understand as a body of believers. It's perfect timing. Kind of open the doors to our church and and we can understand what is it that we stand upon. And you're going to see there isn't a lot to us. Not a lot of agendas. Pure and simple. We want to be people who are continually devoted to the Word of God. Continually devoted to one another. Having communion when needed prayer. And then all these other things you'll see will fall in line. Let's let's pray. I'm kind of wandering around a little bit. Let me just pray. Father, please move me aside. I I pray that every week, Lord, and I I pray that, Father, so that uh, you will be seen, not me. It is our deepest belief here at this church that, Father, uh, these people don't want to hear my opinions on religion. They want to hear, if possible, we all do, what you want from us. The simplicity of loving you and knowing you. And yet in that simplicity there is a a depth that takes us to the place where we be continually devoted to you, Father. We do not want to be a place that plays church. We, We want to be a place that really understands what churches should be. And so we'll follow your guideline best we can, dear Lord. We'll look at what you taught the the apostles and we will try to hold as true to that as humanly possible, Father. And we ask your guidance upon what we do, what we say, all of those things, Father. And so, Lord, I do ask you to move me aside. I do ask you to teach us. It's my prayer, Father, that you would truly open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. So thank you, Father, for this time. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I started this by writing out one simple phrase. What kind of struck me when I got to this place in Scripture was that they felt 
a sense of awe. And I thought to myself, when's the last time that I felt, that you felt, a sense of awe because of your faith? When's the last time that we felt a sense of awe when we came into this place? When we come to this place in the Word of God, we see what happens to a church that is committed to being of one accord, same mind, same purpose, in harmony with one another within the body of Christ. It is a beautiful thing. What set them apart was that there was a sense of awe. Now, that was, I was interesting that I chose that kind of, it kind of threw up, uh, threw up, threw just right into my face, couldn't miss it. The word awe in Greek is P-H-O-B-O-S. It refers to a reverence. It refers to a sense of fear. In the Old Testament, it talked a lot about there was a fear of God. That was like a reverence of God. And so the sense of awe was a sense of the divine presence of God amongst the congregation, amongst the church and amongst the people. It's a feeling that is produced when you and I sense that God is near. That's why when we open the doors of a church, it shouldn't be just to entertain, it should be to have a sense of awe that God is with us and that God wants something for you and something for you and you and you and you and me today. He wants to move within our lives. And He wants to make it in such a fashion that it's not just here in this building that we feel a sense of awe, but that we take it from here and we go into the community and the society in which we live, that there is a a sense of awe about our lives. And so I thought, when's the last time that I had that sense of awe? I I, I looked into commentaries to kind of see if there was anything written about it. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, Dr. McGee, man, he just blows me away. But what he wrote was almost negative. And I thought, well, maybe I ought not to say this. And then I thought, well, who am I not to? And so I'm going to read to you what he wrote about this place in Scripture, about this sense of awe. Dr. McGee writes, I don't think that we have that feeling in churches today, he wrote. He said, because there are so many carnal Christians within the body of Christ who fill the churches today. He says, they bring with them a bitterness, doubt, a division, They bring with them an unwilling heart to forgive. They bring with them an unwilling heart to seek forgiveness, which grieves the Holy Spirit. That was pretty negative, I thought. But who am I to argue with Dr. McGee? I want, this is not his words, now these are mine. I want before I die to sense that within this place. That sense of awe. That there would be unity and harmony among us. That we would be a body of believers that see God move so mightily among us that everyone within this place and out in this community in which we live would know there's something unique about those people. There's something unique about that church. 
the believers in, in Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 43, were so genuine in those days that everyone, whether they were inside the building or outside the church, they felt a sense of awe. By the way, they didn't have a big building. They did meet, I think, in the temple. As it says, they went to the temple. And they went to the temple, I believe, to study the Word of God. But the people were not awed by the building, by its size or its beauty. They weren't awed by the programs that were going on in the church or the preaching or the music or anything that reflected any human abilities. The awe that overtook the community and the believers was the supernatural character that they sensed in the life of the believers and that they knew and trusted that God was with them. There was the divine character of God that filled their lives, that filled their church, that filled their very essence of who they were. Now let me tell you something. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It fills, it fits right in line with what we have been teaching week after week after week. A result of this type of awe, this reverence, this fear of God, this feeling that God is near, comes upon a church when the Word of God is preached. That is the, um, that is the, the very key of finding and sensing this awe, of knowing the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is teaching the church. By the way, 1 Corinthians is not a, not a, 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 a book that you would want to set doctrine to. Basically, Paul was, was chastising the church at, uh, in, in, in Corinth because they were kind of out of line. And as he's teaching here in the 14th chapter, he says in verse 20, I don't want... He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil, be babes. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, he says, it is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers. I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, Paul says, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now watch what he says. If the whole church would assemble together and everyone would speak in tongues and the ungifted man or an unbeliever enters, will they not say that you're all mad? But he goes on to say, if you all, verse 24, if you all prophesy. Now prophecy means if you all proclaim the word of God. If you all state the word of God. In other words, if you were all teachers, every single one of you were teachers. Now remember... What Paul is saying concerning this particular book is that we're not all the same. He teaches, we're not all an eye. If everyone were an eye, where would the hearing be, he said? Or if everyone was hearing, where would the smell be? No, he says, everyone has been gifted differently. But he says, if, if you were, all had prophecy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man. An ungifted man is someone who has not been gifted of God, therefore an unbeliever. If this ungifted person enters, he will be convicted by all. He will be called into account by all. Because everyone would be proclaiming the word of God. 
Hold on and listen now, because this is so important for us to understand. He says in verse 25, the secrets of his heart will be disclosed and he will fall on his face and he will worship God, declaring God is certainly among you. What reveals the secret of this non-believer's heart is not the programs they do. It's not all the gifts. What, what reveals the secret of his heart is the proclamation of the word of God. That's why it's so important that churches, when we open our doors, teach the Word of God. Because if there is someone here that is investigating this, this belief that we've, they maybe have heard of us, or, 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 or some of you invited them to come to church, what's going to make them uh, fall down on their faces and, and worship God in some time will be the very teaching of the Word of God. That's what moves a person to heart. And reaching a heart can only be accomplished by the preaching of the Word of God. That's why I ask with all of my heart, you must know, I mean it from the very depth of my soul that I'm moved aside. That basically, you're not really thinking of all the things I'm saying, but we're looking at the Word of God, we're seeing what's written there, and God starts to move into your heart through the Word of God. And the secrets of your heart are are open to Him. You sense and you realize he knows you better than anyone. He understands all that you've done and all that you're going to do. And then you'll get a sense that you'll want to please him. Or, or something will happen through the, 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 the reading of the word of God and it'll convict you. And, and that's why well, people will come up sometimes and say to me, Whoa, how did you know? Did you know that I was going through such and such? And I'll say, No, of course not. I don't know. That's God that moved in your heart. Because someone will come up and say, Wow, that really ministered to me in this area of my life. And someone else will come up and say, Wow, did you know what I was going through? Because that really ministered to this part of my life and this that are so different that that there's no way I could have tied those two things together. That's God at work through the preaching of His Word. And so, that is the essence of what makes a a sense of the presence of God within our midst. That's why Peter mentioned it first and foremost. You and I are to be continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. Then to fellowship. Then to breaking of bread. Then to prayer. Once those things happen, then God will start to move in their midst. Well, let's face it. You can read through this just as well as I can. One reason that there was this awe in the first fellowship was the wonders and signs that were performed. By, it says, and through, it says, the apostles. Look what it says again. Look back at Acts chapter 2. And look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. You see, just as with Jesus Christ, because the scriptures had not been all written by that time in this first church, they had to go by what the apostles taught. And Jesus Christ told the apostles what to teach. And so to confirm that the apostles were speaking for God, just as Jesus Christ did, they performed miracles. And where miracles were performed, the people would say, whoa, this must be of God. And so God conformed, or confirmed, confirmed the message through the, the wonders and the miracles and the signs that were happening through the apostles. 
Look with me at Acts chapter 9 for just a moment. Acts chapter 9. Let's start at verse 32. It says, It came about, Acts chapter 9, verse 32. It came about that as Peter was traveling through all of those parts, he's going, he's traveling from place to place because you see, they're now not only confined, as we're going to see as we study through this book of Acts, now the message is being spread out to all of the nations. It's going to Jew and Gentile and everyone. And so for them to, to verify what they're saying is from God, some amazing miracles had to take place. So as it came about, verse 32, Peter was traveling through all his parts. He came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years. He was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon, that's all the the surrounding area, they saw him and they turned to the Lord. What happened through that miracle turned to people to confirm that what Peter and the rest of the apostles were saying was of God. Look, it didn't stop there. In Joppa, verse 36... There was a certain disciple, this woman named Tabitha, translated in Greek to call Dorcas. She was abounding, it says, with deeds of kindness and charity. She continually did this. Verse 37, it came about, at that time, she fell sick and she died. And when they had washed her, in other words, prepared her body for burial, they laid her in an upper room. But since Lydia was near Joppa, And having heard that Peter was there, they sent him and they entreated him, Don't delay, come to us. Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, in verse 39, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing him the tunics, the garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. She was a kind woman. By the way, that was more than likely her gift to the church. Her spiritual gift was probably doing deeds of kindness within the body of Christ. Making these tunics, making these things, sharing them with people as they might have need. Peter sent, it says in verse 40, Peter sent them all out. He knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand, raised her up, called the saints and the widows, and he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. In verse 35, we saw that because of the miracle he did with that man called Aeneas, many turned to the Lord. Now because of what he did to Tabitha, many believed in the Lord. Miracles in those days was a sign to confirm what was being taught. So that people would believe in the message. Let me show you this more clearly. Look at Mark chapter 16 verse 20. And then we'll go back to Acts chapter 2. Mark chapter 16 verse 20. It's the last chapter in the book of Mark. I believe it's the last verse. Yes it is. Verse 20 of Mark chapter 16. It says, and they went out. In other words, the the apostles went out and they, they were preaching the gospel everywhere they could, just like Peter. And they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Verse 20, they went out, they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. And note, what happened? They confirmed the word by the signs that followed. 
And so in those days, the way they the way they could verify that what was being taught, because they didn't have the canon, they didn't have the scripture all done by that time, they had to do miracles so as to confirm what they were saying. Jesus Christ did the same thing, folks. When he was on this earth, the reason he did miracle after miracle after miracle was not to do the wonders amongst the people. It was to confirm what he was saying so that they might trust and believe in him. God allowed miracles with the preaching of the apostles to confirm that they were indeed his messengers. And with the passing of the apostolic age, with the completion of this, the canon, we do not need these miracles today. Yes, we'd love to have them, but we don't have miracles and signs and wonders like they did with the first church. Today, you and I can determine who speaks for God by comparing the teaching of this word. That's why it is essential for every church that opens its doors to preach the word of God so that you and I confirm what they are saying is so. And I'm hearing over and over and over again people who who leave this area and move to another community and they search and they search and they search for a church that has someone that will teach through the Bible and they can hardly find them anymore. It's almost become in vogue to not have churches that, to, or to have churches that don't teach the Word of God, but more do programs and, 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 and just topical type of teaching. And how are we to determine whether they're speaking from God or not until we can compare what they are saying? It's just like the Bereans to examine the Scriptures daily to see if what they are being taught is not so. Although the sign gift of miracles is no longer in existence, I'm telling you, nonetheless, God still performs miracles today. Ask the Allwards. They don't believe that's true for their little granddaughter. And ask them if we're not praying for Jeff and trusting that he will also heal him. God still performs miracles today. But it's not to confirm that he is here No, the confirmation that He is with us is by the teaching and the studying of His Word, which ought to bring an awe amongst the believers, sensing that God is near. You know what the greatest miracle today is, and it happens all the time? It's a person coming to Christ. A person like myself, or a person like you, who is going this way in their life and just ignoring God, and all of a sudden they come to know Christ. And they turn and they start walking towards Him in their life. And and you see a a transformation go about in their life. That's as great a miracle as there is today. You and me, we're all walking miracles. What I want from you and me is that we would become walking miracles who are continually devoted to, to the things of God. Once that happens, we see in verses 44 to verse 47 that there was a sharing Now, this could be confusing if we don't study it a little closely. Look, it says in verse 44, All those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. That's not socialism, folks. That's not communism. Because they gave of their properties, their finances, it was all voluntary. Nobody made them give. It says in verse 45, look, 
And those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. That's verse 44, excuse me. Verse 45. And they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with everyone as they might have need. They didn't just give. In other words, you don't come to Christ and say, oh, well, now the church wants everything I've got. Real fine and dandy. Preach it, John. No, that's not at all what's being said. Bible doesn't ask you, and neither will I, for your goods. We will not ask you for what you own. That's, that's all yours. In fact, let me show you that it's all yours. We're not going to teach this right now, but we will in a few weeks. Look at chapter 5, and look at verse, verse 4. There was a couple, and I'll just briefly tell you about them, Ananias and Sapphira. They had property, and what they did was they lied to God. But we'll study this more in time. But I want you to just see what Peter says about the property that they owned. Look at verse 4. He says to them, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, didn't you own it? And the answer is, yeah, that's true. And he says, and after you sold it, was it still not under your control? And the answer is, yeah, they didn't have to give a penny. What they did was that they said that they gave it all and they They didn't. And we'll study that in time. But the essence of of what is being said here in Acts chapter 2 is it's not that when you come to Christ you're to liquidate everything you have, give it into a common pot, and we, we all just split it up. No, that's not the way it's to be. As a matter of fact, the true teaching of giving is that you shouldn't give a penny more than finds joy in your heart to do. Because anything you give beyond what is... A joy for you to give unto the Lord is worthless. It does you no good to give more. So you'll never see me come up here and and beg for you to give or, or ask you to give more. No, the Bible teaches that you and I are to give out of the out of the the generosity of our hearts, and and for some of you it'll be more than for others. But no way that you should just give everything you have unless that's in your heart and then no one should stop you from doing that either but their stuff whatever it was was given to meet needs that arose as anyone as it says in verse 45 might have need but they did not have to give the phrase in verse 46 that they were with one mind expresses the unity of that first fellowship Not only for the things that they owned, not only the things that they shared with one another, but also they had a unity, it says in verses 46 and 47, of going to the temple together. Most likely to study the Bible, to study the apostles' teaching. And then they had communion with one another. Then they ate together and note the joy that filled their hearts. Look at verses 46 and verse 47. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple... They broke bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were, verse 47, praising God and consequently they were having favor with all the people. The word gladness in verse 46 is A-G-A-L-L-I-A-S-I-S in the Greek and it means to rejoice. Amongst them there was a rejoicing, a, a gladness of heart. And one of the key reasons that they had this gladness or this rejoicing was they had a sincerity of heart among one another. In other words, the word sincerity is A-P-H-E-L-O-T-E-S in the Greek. It literally means simplistically. It means smooth or getting along with one another. No rough edges. 
It appears that the goal of the first fellowship was to exalt the Lord God that produced true happiness, a gladness, a sincerity of heart, a rejoicing with one another. And what is the natural response if that will happen within our midst? If we will have that here, the natural response is they will have favor, we will have favor with all the people. And look, look then what takes place. God Himself will add, verse 47, God Himself will add to our number day by day people who are being saved. I want to share with you one of the reasons this first first century church was so wonderful and dynamic. This was written by a a, a kind of a, a, a second, third party, someone that wasn't connected. It was written to the king by a philosopher by the name of Aristides, I believe. I'm going to quote to you some of the things that he wrote to the king concerning the believers in that first century church. This was all written and in, 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 uh, verified by the second century. He says, now the Christians, O king, they have found truth. They claim to know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth. From him, they say they receive commandments for which they have engraved in their minds, in which they observe in the hope and the expectation of a world to come. For this reason, O king, they do not commit adultery nor immorality. They don't, fall, they don't bear false witness. They do not embezzle, nor do they covet what is not theirs. They honor their mother and their father, and they do good to those who are their neighbors. Those who oppress them, they exhort and try to make them friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives, O king, are as pure as virgins. Their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from unlawful sex and impurity in the hope of the world that is to come. As for their men and for their women and for their children, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they do, whether they be rich or poor, they call them brethren without distinction. They love one another. If the widow has needs that are ignored, they take care of her. If there is an orphan that is left alone, they rescue them. He who has gives to him who has not, ungrudgingly, O king, without boasting. When they find a stranger, they bring him into their homes and they rejoice over him. There's a lot more. I'll read one more. If they find poverty in their midst and they do not have spare food, they fast two or three days in order that everyone might have a little. No wonder, folks. No wonder in verse 47. No wonder that that church saw God move so mightily amongst them that He was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. No wonder. It makes sense to me. He could trust those people to come to that church Think about it. Think if you have a, a you have a young child, you have a son or daughter, and you want them to become a. They have a, um, they have this desire to excel, whether it be in music or athletics or in education, doesn't matter. Who of us of a parent would not 
find the best tutor that we can find for them to help them become the best that they can be. Who of us as parents would not send them? If I had a kid that could throw a baseball, by golly, I'd send him to John Verhoeven in a minute. Teach him the pitch, John. I'd send him to the best I could find. And so I believe God looks down upon a church and knows that He can trust that church. No, knows that He can trust that that person that needs to be saved in this church. He knows that they'll be taught the true things of God. He knows that they'll be brought along and growing in their faith. He knows that there's no secret hidden agenda that the church doesn't want to use and abuse them. He knows in his heart that we would be a body of believers that if anyone came, any of us here come to know Christ, we would not try to abuse one another, but, 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 but help one another grow in our faith and trust in Christ and not have any hidden agendas. No wonder in that day God brought people to that church who were day by day being saved. That tells me a lot more, by the way. It tells me that you and I don't save people. He does. What it does tell me, though, is that we ought to have a compassion in our heart for the Lord. We ought to have within our heart of hearts a continual desire to do the things of God, to be continually devoted to those things. I, I, I don't pull a punch with you at all. I'm never going to. I'm never going to try. That's my agenda. My agenda here at this church is to bring a place of harmony, a place of love, a place that we can feel trusted with, with one another in, a place that we could serve and love the Lord. Now, is that going to happen all the time? Nah, we're going to mess up. Sometimes not even on... Not even on purpose. We're just going to fall short. Sometimes maybe I would hurt this dear lady who I love. Went and prayed for her and her sweet husband. But I might accidentally hurt her. Um, That happens because we're all human beings. That's why there needs to be forgiveness. That's why there needs to be the breaking of bread within the congregation. So that if... Perhaps I've offended her, and I don't even know it. She can come to me and say, seeking, you know, our our being together, coming to me and say, you know, that hurt. And hopefully by the grace of God, I'll say, I didn't mean to do that. Please forgive me. And we can have our fellowship together with one another. You see, Jesus Christ wasn't kidding when he says, I want you to love one another. Because if you love one another, the way I have loved you, he says, everyone's going to know you're disciples of mine. And if that can take place, then you and I will have the greatest privilege that God could ever give to a body of believers. We can watch people get saved. I'm all done. <laughs> That's it. I've got a timer on my... I am done. But I just want to impress upon you the importance of seeing people get saved. We won't do it. God will do it. If He knows He can trust us. That when they come here, we'll help teach them to grow. We won't give them any gimmicks. We'll just give them the Word of God. Let them become the person that they want to become. Father, please, may we sense that in our church. May we have a sense of awe. Just a a sense that you're, you're dwelling within us, Father, that you are here. And that when we come here, we don't play church, we become church. We don't entertain one another. We, 
We study your word so that you can move in our hearts, so that you can do with us this day. And yes, Father, if you so desire this week, whatever you desire. And the only way that we will be convicted and hopefully fall on our face to worship you is by the proclamation of your word. And so we'll do that. You can trust us with that, Father. May we be a blessing to you, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I love you all so much. Have a great day. Have a great Memorial Weekend.